and welcome to the pod. We are Where Do We Begin? I'm Jackson and joining me is Harper. Harper, who have we got today? Scott McDonald. Big Socceroo, um, bit of an icon. All the Socceroos fans will know him. All the fans of Australian football who's been uh, across Scotland and the UK playing for heaps of teams. And now he's back down here uh, up north a bit from us playing at Brisbane. And uh, yeah, so we're absolutely delighted to have Scott on the show today. So I think we should get into it. Let's go. And now on the phone, we've got an absolutely massive guest. He's played in some of the biggest and best football competitions across the globe. He's played for some massive Scottish teams and actually say the northernmost country of the UK is named after him. It's Scott McDonald. How are you, Scott? (laughs) Good, thanks, guys. How are we? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks for that. Um, So I guess we'll get right into it. Early life, growing up in Melbourne, what was that like? Um, it was great. I mean, I had a great upbringing. Um, obviously, the background, I've done a full, you know, 360 in terms of uh, where uh, my parents started from. They're both Glaswegian, uh, immigrated over here in the uh, 50s and 60s, met over here. And then, uh, obviously, I came about, was born in Melbourne and um, just uh, was, was brought up with football from the day I was born and um, been a part of all the local community clubs that were predominantly the British ones. Um, because back in those days, as we've seen, and uh, I think Optus are doing a great job at the moment in terms of their documentaries, you know, a lot of the football clubs were social clubs as well and, and treated like that. So you, you you meet a lot of, you know, dear friends and, and family go along. And uh, it was more than just playing soccer at that time. But I brought up throughout that and um, learned my ways in, in the southeast of Melbourne, uh, playing at clubs like Dufton and, and Cranbourne and, I uh, just loved the game, but also loved other sports. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to, you know, be a, one of the lucky guys to to make a career of it, you know. And um, it was yeah, it's still probably a little bit surreal to, to look back on. Um, I haven't had a chance to do that yet. I'm one of those guys if I'm still – I'm still looking to the next thing always, um, which is, I suppose, not a bad thing and um, not really had uh, time to, to settle and uh, look back at anything at the moment. And I, I'm never – Never finish, so we keep we keep banging down the door and keep going. So, do you remember when you first started playing your first ever game? Yeah, I do. Funny, funny enough, I do for particular reasons. Um, look, I, I played at Dufton because my dad played at Dufton, and um, it was under a, a coach who was successful in the local leagues as well, a guy called Stan Webster, who had his two sons play as well. And um, I remember everyone laughing at me when I came on as a substitute that day. And uh, they, they were just in hysterics because I was wearing these, like back in the day, there was a sponsor called like Buffalo Sports thing used to be called Buffalo. And these shorts, honestly, guys, these shorts were like down to my ankles, <laughs> these white shorts. And uh, probably some of them still are like that because I've never grown anyway since that day anyway as well, five years old. But um, no, I remember it clear as day and, and just for that reason alone. Um, but some special memories, um, as we all have when we're young, no matter if you make it in the professional leagues or not, you know, that that's where it all starts and where it begins. And um, you can't forget your routine in terms of the the reason why you played it in the first place. And that was because how much you enjoyed it and loved it. And nothing but really good memories of, uh, of my upbringing playing the game in, uh, in the local leagues in Melbourne. Yeah, you speak about 
playing from a young age. And in the NSL, with the Gippsland Falcons, you were their youngest ever uh, NSL player at just 15. It's pretty insane. Was Did you feel much pressure having that? Uh, no, I guess it was when I was younger, I never really had that issue of pressure. I was, I was quite a confident lad. Bordering probably on a little bit of arrogance, uh, like all good Aussies do, though, isn't it? You know, back in the day. Um, but no, I just took it in my stride. It was funny because it almost didn't happen. Um, I was actually at the Victorian Institute of Sport under Ernie Merrick, who went on to coach the Melbourne Victory, Wellington, and and, and Newcastle in the A League, as we know. And um, me and Ernie had had a little bit of an argument, and uh, he actually suspended me from the from the team. Um, and I thought. He was giving me a call uh, at the end of the week and I got this call from him and I'm expecting to get absolutely rollocked and, you know, uh, in terms of maybe a, a further suspension. Um, but as it happened, he actually got on the phone and I can't swear on here, but he swore at me, he called me a wee so-and-so and said, right, you're off to Gippsland. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, Stuart Munro wants you to go up and uh, be a part of his team for the rest of the season in the NSL. He says, so on you go. Um, you have my blessings. I was like, wow. So um, yeah, it was kind of it's kind of crazy how it come about, but um, really fantastic experience. And actually, I can still remember my first experience actually coming on in the NSL was away to Adelaide City, and they had uh, obviously Alex Tobin, Australian legend, and uh, Milan Ivanovic as well. That was the centre half pairing on uh, my debut in the NSL, and you're thinking, wow, these two monsters that you're playing against. But it was it was all a fantastic experience, and. Uh, set me up well for, for the next thing and probably put me on the, the next pedestal to go and actually uh, represent the Joeys, which was uh, a real big plus point in actually me actually getting overseas and progressing in my career. Um, the fact that I got into the Joeys and we did so well, uh, there were so many scouts at that uh, World Cup and that tournament that uh, a lot of us managed to get overseas from that. So being at Gippsland, obviously not too close to Melbourne, did you move to live there or stay in Melbourne? No, well, thankfully enough, I'm actually from the south southeast. I mean, I was living in Berwick at the time, so um, it was it was still travelable. Uh, my, my, obviously, your parents, as they do, they sacrifice for you, and it was no different for me. And uh, you know, my dad would uh, would drive me down the, the two three times I needed to be there a week. Um, him and my grandfather, you know, uh, definitely my biggest supporters throughout my career. Um, and they were they were there at the time to, to share the load and, and get me there and make sure I was time. So after Gippsland, you moved to Southampton as a trainee. How did that all come about? Yeah, well, I touched on that a little bit on the last question in, in terms of being part of the Joeys and uh, how we did so well in, in 1999 to get to the final of that World Youth Cup. Um, all the attention came from that and Southampton were one of the teams that were actually watching and I had an opportunity to go on trials at you know a couple of clubs in Germany as well as uh, one or two in England but Southampton were the, were the ones at the forefront that actually came with a concrete offer of a contract so with that um, there was not really a lot more to decide um, they had pledged their future to me and, and, I, and I felt really wanted and had a look over there with my dad for a week and um, decided that that was definitely going to be the club for me to progress because I looked at it, it was a smaller club within the Premier League and uh, it was giving a lot of younger players opportunity because it wasn't very financially strong compared to some of the other uh, clubs within the, the Premier League. At that moment as well, you didn't really have the TV rights as big as what they are now 
where all 20 premiership clubs are absolutely loaded. It was a little bit differently structured back then. Um, so there was a better opportunity and, um, and that's why I chose it. It was a great club. And, um, I met my now wife there as well. And, uh, it's still a place that I, I go back to all the time and holds a, a special place for me, you know, in my heart, um, as a football club and as a place as well. Were you over there by yourself or did some family come along? Yeah. Well, um, initially, like I said, my dad went for the week with me, then we flew back, come back over and I was on my own. So 16 year old um did it did it all on my own but you know for those first couple of months it was tough and then you start to realize you start to go hold on a minute i'm i'm actually you know no one to tell me what to do here properly anyway my mum and dad aren't here anymore but let's uh let's see what we can do so it was um a real learning experience but it was great at the same time but i think after the first initial few months of being homesick then the next few months, you're going, right, I can do this, I can do that. The freedom kicks in. You start to have a little bit of a party and you get to see things you probably haven't done before. And then all of a sudden, the reality sets in. Then you go, you know what, I'm here for a reason. Get my head down, work hard, and, and let's try and make the, the most of this opportunity that I've got. And that was certainly my case, you know. But I guess that's all part of growing up as well. Um, and when you're in a, a strict environment and you're, you're trying to pursue a career like that, there is going to be times where you need to, a release. And um, you certainly learn quick and fast, um, especially when you're only 16 in a foreign country and you have to be pretty street smart and savvy um, and learn quickly. And I was thankfully, I, I, was, I was able to do that. And I just loved the experience. It, it was great. Um, obviously, my mum didn't <laughs> out of everyone, but... Um, you know, for me, it was it was brilliant, and uh, I managed to have a little bit of success as well. Obviously, get my debut in in the Premier League uh, for Southampton at 18. It was it was an amazing experience, um, but unfortunately, one that wasn't to last. And um, that was certainly a big learning curve uh, at that period as well to have the highs and the lows in such a short space of time with one manager believing you, and then the next manager coming in not. Um, that was very difficult to to get over instantly but you know one that uh certainly held me in good stead you know further in my career that's for sure so going over to live on the other side of the world it's just a massive shift and your parents both being glaswegian like you said had you been to the uk or anywhere overseas before yeah i had been i had been on a on a couple of occasions when i was sort of uh 12 and 14 um i went over there to scotland to see family and actually uh, my local club i mentioned dufton earlier we uh raised funds and actually went to a couple of um tournaments over in the uk when when we were 14 years of age to play against different uh teams from different countries and that was an unbelievable experience and sort of opened my eyes up to how good some of these players were worldwide um but yeah uh, look it was no matter you know, if you've been in, in Europe or in UK before, you know, going all the way over there at 16 years of age, leaving all your friends behind, you know, at the, at the sort of, you know, business end of your high school education, uh, it was a tough decision. But um, one that, uh, you know, in the end, my dad sort of made for me in, sense, in the sense of if you don't do it, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And I'm, I'm pretty pleased that he uh, managed to um, convince me otherwise to, to get over there and give it a go. So after your time, in your time at Southampton, you got loaned out a few times to Huddersfield and to Bournemouth. How were those experiences for you as a player? 
again, um, amazing times, but uh, quite a few hard ones within them as well, you know. Um, and that's the story of a, a lot of majority of athletes, you know. That the, there's there's highs that or the public see and perceive, but there's so many more lows than there is highs being a professional athlete that you have to overcome and um, have the, the strength and, and, and mentality to, to be able to keep persisting. And I went on loan to Huddersfield. Like I said, I'd made my debut in the Premier League and uh, thinking, right, that's me now. I'm, 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 I'm almost made it here. I get my new deal and I'm going to be playing in the Premier League for years to come. Obviously, that didn't happen. New manager come in, didn't really want to see me. Um, said I could go on loan, ended up at Huddersfield and within uh, a four or five week period, they were in financial troubles and were on the brink of uh, actually being uh, liquidated. Um, and you found yourself in this totally new scenario and situation where the club was in a crisis and you're in the middle of it and you're actually trying to play and perform and because you're not actually part of that football club, fans are calling you out as if you don't really care. And that was something that I really needed to get my head around and, and, and was very difficult because um, you were there to try and progress your career. But um, all the, the variables that are going on around you uh, made it very difficult. And uh, again, that was a bit of a, a confidence denter and one that you, you had to overcome. You know, you're warming up on the touchline and your own fans are giving you stick, not wanting you to come on. That was, that was incredible, you know. But um, one that certainly, again... You, you have to have the strength of character to, to be able to, to move on from those moments. And it certainly helped me, that's for sure. And Huddersfield nearly oh, being in a pretty bad financial position. And in 03-04, you were at Wimbledon, which I had no idea about. And that was their last <laughs> season as the original Wimbledon. What was that whole experience like? <laughs> it sounds all doom and gloom for me, but that was a really difficult moment as well. <laughs> it wasn't all of that, guys, but... They were in financial meltdown as well, funny enough, um, because um, they were moving and uh, they were just coming out of administration. So I was there through the administration points because uh, the the owner, Pete Winkleman, who obviously is still involved at MK Dons, um, was taking them up to Milton's Keynes. So trying to get them out of administration and all that and move them, um, it was a difficult period for the whole football club. Um, but again, it was, it was a great experience because we had a young team there some really good players um, that went and played a lot of Premier League football. Um, and again, it was a chance to go and play in the championship. Never played too much. Um, but at that moment in time, um, I didn't really want to move away from the south of England because I had my partner there who's now my wife and I'd been at Southampton for so many years. It was very difficult again, still being that young, to actually want to move somewhere else. Um, but I, I found, you know, after that, uh, sort of period that I needed to go and find somewhere where I was actually now going to go and play and become a man um, because I wasn't getting that opportunity and uh, my time was coming now that either that was going to happen or I was going to have to come home. It was as simple as that. So you did make that decision. Um, yeah. Moving to Scotland, did uh, the, did your parents' Glaswegian heritage affect that? Like you wanted to just go to Scotland because you had an opportunity there? Um, no, it didn't actually. Um, it was actually through um, Lou Sticker, who's still an agent within the Australian and World Game, and uh, another guy called Dave McPherson, who actually played out here. He was uh, at Carlton when the old NSL played for Hearts and Rangers, and um, I managed to link up with them 
through a period and, and through their links, they wanted me to go up and, and go to Motherwell. And I was, I was so against it. I was like, no, nah, I don't want to go. Um, I think I'd probably just rather go home and, and restart, re-kick my career. Um, but they managed to convince me otherwise and said to me, look, go up, try it. It's not for you then. It's not for you. You can always go home still. And um, I'm obviously to this day delighted I did do that. Um, Terry Butcher, who was the manager of Motherwell at the time, um, within three days offered me a contract right there and then. And I, I guess that was the real beginning for me of uh, some great things to happen. And I just needed, like a lot of athletes that you talk to, you need someone to believe in you and give you that confidence to go and express yourself. And Terry certainly gave me that um, in abundance. And uh, I never really looked back from that moment. Were there many Australians playing in Scotland at the at the time, or was it just you? Uh, Patrick Casnorbo was there. He had just broken through at Hearts. He came over from being at South Melbourne. Uh, Craig Moore, who was very successful, he was playing for Rangers at, at the time. Um, and Mark Viduka, just, uh, he wasn't long gone um, down the road. Danny Invincible was there as well uh, for a period. So, yeah, there was there was a few Aussies there um, at the time. Um but look, I didn't really have any decision. Uh, well, in my sort of decision making, it was it was just a chance to actually go and progress and, and be part of a first team that played at Saturday. Traditionally in football, back in those days, all games were played at 3 p.m. on a Saturday, and you knew if you were playing at 3 p.m., that was important. You were you were part of the big time. So to be actually playing at that time again and, and kicking off, it was great for me, and I just found that that was what I needed to now go and play and, and be part of a first-team structure and, like I said, mature and become a man and, and progress within the game. Now, moving up to Scotland uh, from the south of England, the south of England's got a very different reputation <laughs> to Scotland. Um, <laughs> so what was what were some of the differences between the culture of football and just, like, life in general between the two places? Oh, look, the weather. <laughs> I think, first and foremost, how much colder it was. Uh, it was absolutely freezing. But look, I, I suppose growing up in a Scottish environment, a Scottish family, that I kind of already understood the people and, and understood what I was coming into. Um, and I loved it. I absolutely embraced it and uh, became one of their own. You know, I, I, and I still feel a lot of me is more Scottish than I am Australian because of the the most time that I spent in my adult life has been in, in that country. So a lot of me is still in that mentality um, to this day. Uh, and it was just, it's just been a, a great time. So many good friends made. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I never really had a problem fitting in there. Uh, it just felt like the, the right place for me um, in all things to, to progress. And I was very happy throughout that period. So you were a Scotty, uh, a Celtic fan growing up. At the end of the 04-05 season, you scored two <laughs> late goals against your boyhood club. How did that feel? Um, <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me this question. <laughs> Do you know what, guys? I still get this every day within uh, – if I'm to walk down the street in Glasgow or even in Australia at times, I still get this question about uh, that infamous game. Um, and I guess really that, that that game put me on a different map, um, and it was a bit surreal at the time. You know, I thought the goals I scored were brilliant goals, and you're elated. Um, and then the final whistle goes, and you you soon realise, oh my goodness, 
what have I done here? Um, you, the team that you, you grew up supporting, you've just lost them the league, Scott. What have you done? I'm going to get killed here. <laughs> you know? And um, that that went all the way back to even Australia because my, my grandfather was actually in the, the Melbourne Celtic Supporters Club watching that game and uh, had to get escorted out with security um, for, his own, <laughs> for his own safety um, after that game because of what I did. So, yeah, it was it was crazy. Um, but look, one that I certainly don't regret either um, for reasons like I said, it, it put me on another map and people started to look at me a lot more and, and a lot differently. And I think um, without that day, I'm not sure I end up going actually to play for Celtic in the end anyway. Um, so it was just another piece of the puzzle along the way. Obviously, you couldn't see us there, but we were grimacing with the just, I guess, the pain of that whole thing. It just sounds insane. And giving to Rangers, especially, bloody hell. Yeah. Um, and apparently, uh, Motherwell rejected a bid from Rangers uh, in January 07 uh, for you. Was there any chance that you would have gone there if they had accepted the bid? Well, uh, yeah, I would say, I would absolutely say yes. Um, for the reason being that. At that time, Celtic were nowhere to be seen in the negotiations. They, it, it didn't look like at any point Celtic were actually going to come in for me uh, and sign me. Especially, I'm thinking because of that day, there's no way Celtic are going to sign me with my history now. So Rangers probably would be, you know, the next option uh, in terms of size of football clubs, opportunity to play in European competitions. And the possibility of winning silverware, it was it was definitely a possibility for me, um, because when you're a young aspiring player, even though you support one or the other, you're looking at one financially, two progressively, um, and also to put the green and gold on. You know, there's a bigger opportunity if you're actually playing for a bigger club and playing in European competitions. So, um, with all that, um, without doubt, um, it was certainly of interest for me. So yeah, after. 42 goals in 108 games for Motherwell. You finally got your move to your boyhood club. Was that just such a special feeling, especially your grandfather being in the Melbourne Celtic fan club? Was, just, was that just huge for you and your family? It was enormous. You know, so much so that actually my family moved back to Scotland um, for one of the seasons to be part of it. You know, it was um, a lot of dreams come true, you know, from, from that period and, how much it meant to, to the whole family. Um, a young boy uh, growing up in you know Melbourne, uh, supporting uh, a club like Celtic, and then ends up playing for him in the, the country where his mum and dad's from. You, you know, you can't really write that script any better. Um, so it's yeah, it, it was it was really special for everyone. In your first season at Celtic, you won BBC Sports Sound, which is like the premier sports radio station in Scotland. You won their um, Player of the Year for the Scottish League. So how much of an honour was that to receive that award? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was actually probably disappointed I didn't get the, the PFA one. Uh, but my teammate Aidan McGiddy was unbelievable that season too. So, you know, to pit me after I'd scored so many goals that year on my first season, you know, being at a big club like that, because no one expected me probably to even play as many games as what I did to, and never mind score the goals. Um, but it was just an amazing time. You know, it was a dream. That was a dream come true, that that whole period. And uh, it went so quick, the, the, the time I was at Celtic. But to play and win titles, uh, playing European Champions League games, scoring those games, 
it was it was just a, an unbelievable uh, time for me uh, individually and collectively as a team. And it's uh, such a special club, guys, that um, when you play for it, um, you're always part of that family. And I certainly still feel part of it. Uh, even uh, even after that infamous day that we talk about, 04, 05, I think a lot of them have forgiven me for that day, thankfully. I made up for it. Um, but no, it's, it's truly special and still... You know, I, I was lucky enough to be doing a lot of media work with the BBC, actually, um, in the last couple of years before I came home and doing a lot of those Champions League games and whatnot. And they still send shivers down your spine when the Champions League music comes on and the atmosphere is, is so electric um, and, and the, the stadium shake. And it, it just makes you want to get out there again and, and put the green and white on. Um, some really special times. Yeah, so obviously that just amazing... Celtic spell. How quickly did the animosity from the fans go away? Um, look, I, I always knew that it was going to be a tough job to convince them, you know, and I, I didn't really have a problem with that signing for, for Celtic, though. I thought, you know, I had the confidence after playing for Motherwell that I'd scored all those goals. I'm actually going to a bigger club with better players in the same league. How can I not do any better than what I was doing at Motherwell? So, this is this is easy, guys. You know that was my mentality. Um, as crazy as it sounds, because a lot of people go there and you know even big players and and still struggle. So um, the the expectancy on me wasn't really there from the fans. They thought I was probably going to be a backup more than anything, but um, weren't really impressed probably because I was there. But um, I think once you start playing well and scoring goals and the team's winning, then it, it's forgotten. You're one of the, you're one of their own. Um, and you're fighting for the cause. So uh, the fans have always been brilliant to me um, since since then. And, um, yeah, look, you'll, you'll get one or two that still like to remind you of that day uh, before you sign. But, uh, look, it's it's one of those things. That, again, like I said, you can't live it down. Um, but certainly one that I can't say I'm fully ashamed of either because it's um, one that helped me progress in my career. So you did mention it before, making your debut in the Champions League. How was that for you? Uh, well, my actual debut in the Champions League, I mean, we played in the qualifiers to qualify. That went really well. But our very first game was against Shakhtar Donetsk away. And I'm thinking, right, this is a big opportunity, big moment. We've had the, the qualifiers, did quite well. There's another great chance. And uh, before you knew it, bang, bang. So we were like eight minutes in and we were 2 nil down <laughs> away to Shakhtar. I'm like, oh, my God. So this is the next level. Um, and we got absolutely peppered for 90 minutes. We managed to keep it at 3 nil, But I was thinking after that, oh, my God, this is going to be the longest uh, European campaign ever. Um, but, you know, thankfully things changed very quickly um, thereafter uh, with the next one, which was AC Milan at home. And um, obviously get my first goal for the club in the Champions League. And being the winner in such dramatic uh, style, uh, it just set up the rest of the season for me and uh, and the club as well, and, and gave us extra confidence that we could actually uh, go and progress in the in the in the tournament. Celtic being a massive worldwide club, I guess. Do you reckon you guys got a bit complacent against, I guess, the small name uh, of Shakhtar Donetsk from Ukraine? Uh, no, not really. I mean. They are a small name, but I tell you what, the the finances that those guys had compared to us was unbelievable. Um, obviously, paying a lot of tax free money um, to Brazilians, the likes of Fernando was there and Fernandinho that now play at, at you know Manchester City, a little bit unknown at that time, but 
um, you know, when they had the caliber of players like that, um, you can see why they were strong. And I think um, from memory, I remember going into the last game to qualify for the next phase of the Champions League, and they were on something like half a million per man to qualify for the next phase. Um, so that's how serious the the money was for you know these guys and what they were getting paid. So um, we certainly didn't underestimate them as much as people can look at them as a smaller club compared to you know the worldwide fan base of Celtic. They can certainly still outpay them. So um, we were still the minnows within that within those groups. Any time that we played, we always felt like we were the the major underdog more than anyone else. So in your first season at Celtic, you were the top scorer of the league. Um, did that come down to just the quality of player around you or do you think you you just went up a little bit of, more of a level? Oh, I suppose it was a little bit of both. I think I think what I managed to do very quickly and um, possibly some of, some others didn't grasp it was to simplify everything, not to make things complicated. Probably at Motherwell, I had to do a little bit more for my goals than what I had to do uh, at Celtic. And I realised that quickly with the calibre of players that I had around me that it wasn't about doing the extra things. It was about actually doing the simple things and getting in the right areas of the pitch to score your goals. And it was all about numbers at Celtic because you're only as good as as many goals as you score as a Celtic striker. Um, and I realized that quickly that give it to someone else, get in the right area and get your head or get your foot on it and, and get your goals. Don't worry about anything else. Um, the rest will come later on. So I managed to do that pretty quickly. And uh, once you get your first goal, that, that, definitely calmed me down to, to go on to the next levels and certainly Gordon Strachan as my manager um, believed in me massively which was uh, which was massive as well um, in, in terms of my success at the club. Now the Scottish League Cup semi-final uh, a couple of years later that was a pretty crazy game on penalties can you tell us a bit about your memories of that? Yeah I can against Dundee United um, I remember it quite well actually it was it wasn't much of a game, to be fair, till the penalties, I must say. It was a nil-nil game, I think, from memory. Um, and went all the way to penalties and it finished 11-10. And we, we went all the way around. I, I, I took the first penalty for us, managed to score it. And then it came all the way back around to me. And I just remember thinking before, because we were always second to, to take the, the penalty. Um, the, the guy who was actually taking his second penalty for Dundee United was Willow Flood, who we were really we were actually going to sign in a next in the next couple of days, which was so odd for the player himself. Um, and I'm just thinking when he's lining up, please miss it, so I don't have to. So even if I miss, we're still in this. <laughs> you know, that's the that's the things that go through your head at the time. Like going, oh God, if he scores, and I miss, we're out. So um, obviously, when he misses, I couldn't I couldn't get there quick enough. I actually sprinted down to the penalty spot to get my ball on the spot and, and uh, obviously go, you know what, whatever we do here, we're still in it. So just give it, just give it a good old whack. And um, thankfully it went in and we were in the final and uh, managed to win it that year, which was, which was amazing as well. Yeah. Just amazing honor, I guess. And then in 2009, uh, you guys at Celtic came down to Australia, played against Brisbane and you were named the captain for that preseason game. Was that, a special feeling coming back to Australia and then being the captain especially? Yeah, it was huge. It really was. And, uh, you know, it was the first game under a new manager as well because Gordon had left and uh, Tony Mowbray had just taken over. Um, so for him to give me the captaincy was was a huge honour for me. You know, being back home as well, 
uh, and playing at Suncorp, which I've always loved that stadium, you know, in terms of playing football there. It's a proper football stadium when uh, you, you get the crowds in and uh, there was a fantastic you know, atmosphere that day as well. And, uh, you know, a, a really enjoyable um, time for me to come home and play in front of a lot of friends and families at that moment. So 51 goals in 88 games for Celtic. Is there any goals that stand out in your mind as really special to you? Oh, look, I think any time you score against your, your rivals, you know, being Rangers, um, which I was lucky enough to do on quite a few occasions, they're all special ones. Um, and European likes as well, guys, you know, like I touched on. Scoring against you know, AC Milan and Manchester United, they were they were big big games and big goals and um, yeah just just a lot of special memories like I said and uh, probably without question you know the highlights of my career you know playing at, at that football club. So obviously playing in the Champions League, you're playing as huge names. Were there any special shirts from uh, huge players that you collected? I think probably the the one that stands out is when we beat AC Milan on that night. I managed to nab Kakas, um, who was World Player of the Year at the time. AC Milan were European champions, so um, for me that was that was huge. Uh, one that I'm still kicking myself at to this day is um, <laughs> I was actually too scared and too embarrassed to actually asking for it. it was Ronaldinho um, when we played Barcelona? They actually knocked us out that year um, in the round of sixteen and. Um, I was actually too much in awe to actually ask him for his jersey. Crazily enough, um, I just I just loved him as a player and thought he was to this day one of the best players that, that's played the game. And and now he played with a smile. So um, that's certainly one that got away, guys. Who did you get? Whose jersey did you get from Barcelona that game? Um, I managed to get Lilian Turams, who obviously World Cup winner for France. So it wasn't a bad second. Yeah, <laughs> not not too bad at all. Um, <laughs> so. Those Champions League games and then the old firms against Rangers, uh, were those Rangers derbies the biggest games you've ever played in, do you reckon? Oh, without question. You know, arguably they're the biggest games in the world, guys, you know, in terms of the build-up to them. The whole week, you know, leading up to it, you, you can't – you can go to training and come home. You can't go anywhere else, you know, because everyone wants to talk about it. It's front back pages of their newspapers – you know, I've been in, I've been in like, uh, you know, traffic lights and you know, busy streets, and and people pull up beside you, and all of a sudden you're getting absolute abuse, and people showing you the V's and everything from the opposite uh, supporters, and um, yeah, it's it's very tribal and very passionate, and it's these people's lives. So um, you know, the build up to it, and then on the day, um, the atmosphere is just like no other, um, and. It's more a relief when you you come out at the end of the game and you've won it than uh, than anything else because the, the pressure is that high and intense in the build up to it. Uh, you just want to get the ninety minutes done and get the three points and go home, um, and you're very happy because if you haven't, you're hiding for the rest of the next week, <laughs> you know, under your covers, um, trying to recover uh, for the next week going on because you're getting abuse for not winning the game and uh, you know there's. So many radio chats and uh, opinions, and even worse now, obviously, with social media, uh, thankfully, which wasn't as prominent when I was um, playing. But, yeah, it's, um, it's so big, guys. It's, it's a religion, as they say, and, um, you know, and the things that go in, uh, in amongst it as well. So um, it's so huge for these people. And then uh, moving back to England uh, in January 2010, on deadline day for Middlesbrough, 
How much of a big decision was that and how much thinking did you put into it? Yeah, look, guys, that was um, obviously the biggest decision in my career, um, having to leave Celtic at that time, uh, doing so well. Um, but Gordon Strachan had just uh, gone to Middlesbrough as well and the influence that he had within my career in, in terms of how I was playing at, at Celtic Football Club. And for him to leave, I was pretty devastated um, and wasn't getting on with my then manager, Tony Mowbray, at that time uh, very well at Celtic throughout that period. I'd been in and out the team and um, was feeling at that time, even still scoring goals, that I wasn't as valued as probably what I once was. So maybe the time was to move. And uh, speaking to Gordon and the football club at Middlesbrough, they had some real big plans to have a big push to get back to the Premier League and uh, spend a bit of cash to get there. And I felt it was it was going to be a great move and uh, we were going to do some good things and the, the players we were going to sign. And so I ended up uh, taking the plunge and, and moving back down to England and, and going to Middlesbrough um, on that deadline day, like you say, which was a, a bit of madness, as always, when, when it uh, comes down to the wire. I think I signed probably was just a couple of minutes to spare um, on deadline day. So, um, but yeah, look, it was it was really really tough uh, on that day to actually leave Celtic and one even probably for the next six months I was still questioning whether or not it was probably the right decision or not. You actually did score your first goal for the club in a derby against Newcastle. So, how was that for the fans moving to this new club um, and this new derby? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, th- that that game that you point out was probably a good half a dozen games into my career at Middlesbrough. So I was needing a goal at that time, and um, it just happened to be that it was the big occasion. There was a sellout crowd, which was the first time being at Middlesbrough that that, that was the case. And um, certainly, I was thinking at that moment, "Wow, these these are the games I've came down here for. Here's the pressures, sellout crowds like what we had at Celtic." Um, and a chance to play against the, the best team in the league at that, at that stage. So um, to perform on that stage was great. Um, and obviously I scored a lot of goals even at my time in Middlesbrough, but it wasn't unfortunately replicated as well as probably what was at Celtic because of uh, the level we were playing at. And uh, we just never managed to, to succeed um, and get to you know the, the, the glamour lights of the Premier League in my time at Middlesbrough. It's a question that's asked a lot uh, amongst football fans, I guess. But how much, uh, how well do you reckon teams like Celtic and Rangers could fare in the Premier League? Uh, look, they could challenge. You give them five years, they'd be challenging for the title without question because of their pull in terms of their their fan base and um, their worldwide popularity. And then you you put into the financials of the Premier League and what each club gets. Um, I think it would put a lot of fear into a lot of the English clubs. And that's why it will never happen, guys, because um, Celtic and Rangers could be such powerhouses within the the English Premier League um, that I think a lot of clubs are, are fearful that bringing them down, what it would do to, to some of the other clubs. Uh, because there's a lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of players, if, uh, if you said Celtic and Rangers were playing in the Premier League, they would want to come to those football clubs and experience the types of atmospheres um, that I've managed to experience over the, over the time. If it did happen, would you be on board with a decision? Um, it's a tough one because uh, it depends on how the structure would be for the rest of the, the Scottish game. Um, would it benefit it or, 
or would it be a negative? Um, a lot of people would argue that it would be a positive in the Scottish game. I'm not so sure in terms of leaving you know, the, the two strongest leave your league. I, I don't know where it leaves it. Um, but I think if Celtic and Rangers were to go, I think progressively, I think every uh, professional football club in Scotland should take the same path and become a British uh, league, almost like a super league. And I think it would help all those clubs financially also uh, longer term. Whatever tiers they may well go into, though, that would be always the, the tough discretion with the the, uh, the governing bodies and, and uh, trying to, you know, um, fight it out and wh- where they would all lie. Because as we've seen in, in these crisis times, uh, within the self-interest of a lot of football clubs, it's causing a lot of issues <laughs> for a lot of administrations. So uh, I think it would be a bit of a nightmare. So in your time at Middlesbrough, you never uh, found the light of the Premier League. How close were you guys to getting there? Um, probably not close enough if I'm being honest you know there was times when we were uh, really really good uh, we were top of the top of the table in the championship at Christmas time one year uh, and looking so strong to, to get promoted and I think we only won like four games in the second half of the season it just it was an absolute disaster and no one could put their finger on why that why it was happening um, so that was a huge disappointment and we managed to have spurts in, in seasons, but never collectively get it over the line to be able to, um, you know, reach the lights of the Premier League, unfortunately, in my time. And the year I left, I think it was a year later, they, they managed to do so under Karanka, um, which was, gosh, I was delighted for the football club seeing how tough it had done it um, over the, you know, the four or five year period of being out of the Premier League. But just a shame I wasn't a part of it also. Now, uh, just before you did sign for Middlesbrough, uh, Celtic rejected a bid from the then Premier League side, Wigan. And if if they had accepted it and you had the option of Wigan or Middlesbrough, would you have taken Wigan? Um, a tough question, guys. I suppose it didn't really come to fruition as well as probably what, what it was said. I think in the end, I think Wigan were trying to get me on loan and Celtic were just totally against it. Um, and I think the sway of probably... Gordon Strachan throughout that whole period, I probably still would have went to Middlesbrough guys just because of Gordon and uh, what he meant to me as a manager and what he gave me. I think that would have probably swayed me to still go to Middlesbrough. So after a little bit of a spell at Millwall, you signed back for your first Scottish club, Motherwell. How was that experience coming back? Yeah, it was surreal. I mean, it was like going back in time because (laughs) at a club like my uh, Motherwell, it's such a family club and, uh, Nothing really changes. Uh, even the personnel, to the to the to the kit man, to the cleaning lady, it was all the same people, you know, from ten years on. So it was, it was quite crazy, um, but special as well. And um, it was a tough period for the club uh, in relegation troubles. But uh, again, special time because we managed to get out of trouble and, and keep the, the you know the club in the Premier League and to survive. And um, they've gone on to do good things since then, which is great because. For a club like that, if they were to get relegated, uh, it would you know, mean some serious repercussions and possibly they could still be down there um, if they hadn't have survived that year. So, um, again, really pleased for a club that gave me everything, more or less, you know, in terms of the opportunity to kickstart and progress in my career. A Celtic year in, year out, competing for the big titles. And when you were at Middlesbrough, one of the bigger championship clubs, but then back to Motherwell, like you said, 
fighting against relegation. Can you tell us a bit about the differences between the types of pressure that there are? I think there's more pressure. You know, I think, um, you know, when there's livelihoods at stake, which there certainly was, you know, you're, you're looking at around you and in terms of not just the players, everyone looks at the players first and foremost and goes, well, they could be, you know, having to take 50% wage cuts or they could be, you know, without a club next year now and where they're going to go because they get relegated. But no, there's more serious repercussions than that because you're looking at the, the dinner ladies, you're looking at the kit man, you're looking at the physio, you're looking at people that in the ticket office, all these people that, you know, mean so much to the football club and they love this football club, they could all be going if we don't survive because uh, the wages, um, the financial restraints of, you know, getting out of the Premier League. So from that perspective, when we did survive um, through the playoff against Rangers, uh, which was a special day, I was just looking around and just so happy more than anything that all these people still had their livelihoods, you know, and, and that's how serious it can get within the game. We, we call it just a game, but at some of the lower levels, you know, it's, it's more than that, you know, it's, it's people's livelihoods, like I'm saying. And um, that was just the, the real pleasing thing for me that we were able to, I was able to give that back um, during that period. So after a few more years, at various clubs in Scotland, you f- you became one of the inaugural players for Western United in in the A League. How was that feeling? It was amazing. I mean, I actually thought probably my time had come where I wasn't going to get the opportunity to come back to Australia and play. So when Western United obviously gave me the phone uh, phone call and and asked me if I wanted to be a part of it, uh, I, I took it with two hands. You know, I was so excited by it coming back to Melbourne, especially and. Um, you know, it felt like uh, the final chapter, to be honest. I didn't think I'd obviously move to Brisbane, but I have. <laughs> um, but um, it felt like just the full circle was completed, you know, began in Melbourne and was finally coming home to, to finish off what was, you know, a, a decent career. And um, people that hadn't seen me for a long time were able to go and enjoy me playing in my last moments before uh, retirement came. Now, you spoke about Lou Sticker before, and I think he's pretty involved with Western United. Was he one of the driving forces behind that move? Yeah, look, Lou, Lou, Lou was, uh, but certainly Mark, you know, Mark Rudin uh, has final say on everything. Um, so, you know, I, I had some really good conversations with Mark at the time, and he was keen to have me on board And uh, throughout those chats. It was really positive for me and the family, and um, we decided to um, take the plunge and, and come back. You know, which was a difficult decision in, in itself because, like I said, I'd spent all my adult life in the UK, and especially in Scotland, where I was highly respected and probably had still, you know, a career to to be had, whether it be within playing coaching or media to give all that up to to come back and pursue this opportunity it was a big call for me uh, but one that me and the family you know didn't think twice about that's how much we really wanted to come and uh, experience australia and give our give our kids the, the the opportunity of a different life as well but also the chance for to play in a, a new league for me which i'd played in scotland for a long time and i was starting to get a little bit stale hence why i retired first time round. And then uh, managed to come back again because this opportunity came up. Uh, I really wanted it, um, and it's been it's been great. It's been a journey, 
since coming back, but uh, one that I've uh, really enjoyed um, being a part of in the A-League this year. So being the third Victorian club, you played victory in the first derby against them and you you beat them 3-2. Did you think you got a bit of um, uh, they took you more seriously after that game? I think so. I think it was very early on as well. And um, being 2-0 down in that game and to come back uh, and beat victory, um, you know, on their own turf and somewhere where they're, they're very strong. I think from that, everyone started to to look at us and go, well, actually, you know, this could be a team that could be reckoned with and they've got some power, albeit they've got some, some older players, but um, certainly uh, they can all still play. Um, and that was something we that motivated us because I think a lot of people had, had made a lot about, you know, being dad's army, so to speak, in terms of the age of the players. Um, so we were more than motivated um, to have a good start. It really was a good start um, in terms of the, the beginning that we had um, and just a thoroughly enjoyable time um, throughout that period. Um, but again, other things happen in, in sport and football and some opportunities come up and, um, that's why I took the, the decision to, to come to Brisbane in the end as well. And lots of people have a go at Western United, like no fans. They play in a fairly empty stadium out in Geelong. And I guess they say they're not really too set up for the future. But do you reckon, mm. what are your thoughts on that? Do you reckon they will fare well in 10 years or so? I certainly hope so. You know, um, being part of, you know, the inaugural year, I, I certainly want them to succeed and, uh, you know, the, the foundations of what they've set up there and, and where they want to go with the football club and progress it and be the first club to, to own their own stadium um, is really exciting. And I really hope that they can progress that and, and pursue it um, and bring it to the league because I think it would be huge for the game, something that's lacking in terms of, you know, football clubs having their own assets, which none do realistically not even the FFA have them so um, to be one of the first to do that would be huge for the game um, it looks like now obviously after this pandemic that we've had it's going to probably um, make it even more challenging uh, but I guess time will tell guys um, and it has been difficult no question it's been challenging for the club in terms of trying to find you know different venues to play um, hopefully next season they can find somewhere where they can really call home and um, allow their, their fans to grow and, and be part of that football club. And I think, I guess, everyone expected you to last a bit longer at Western United than you did. And then you moved up to Brisbane uh, under Robbie Fowler. So can you tell us, uh, shed some light into that? Yeah, look, I mean, things were getting a little bit bobbed down for me at, at Western United and um, in terms of whether I was going to play or not. Um, and I felt... I needed to, to be somewhere where I was going to be important. I was going to be given the opportunity to, to lead. Um, and certainly Brisbane wanted me to do that and under Robbie. And, and Robbie was more than forthcoming within that, that he seen me as probably someone who could bring other players into, into uh, the game and uh, uh, use my experiences. Um, and that was certainly something that was a big plus point for me coming to this football club. And obviously Robbie Fowler, being the, the player that he was um, and being British as well, guys, I think, you know, working under Tony and Darren Davies and also Robbie Fowler and having actually another three or four uh, boys from the UK 
it, it was it was made for me to come here because you know it sounds crazy, but they're my people. You know, I've I understand the Brits more than they're, they're my own kind because I've been around them that much. So for me, walking through the door uh, within thirty seconds, I was comfortable. You know, and I think that's been proven and shown through the period of actually being here for the four months I've been here and how far we've progressed and how much I've enjoyed it and how well I've done because of that. Um, and uh, it's been a great decision for me. So moving on to your international career now, you made your debut in 2006 against Bahrain for the Socceroos after representing the the national team at all age levels under that. How, did, how special was that for you? It was amazing. I mean, um, there was a lot of talk of me playing for Scotland at that point, um, which probably progressed myself to get that cap a little bit quicker um, because I was never going to play in the, the World Cup for for the national team at that time. Um, but it was amazing. I can still remember it um, like it was yesterday. Uh, Josip Skoko was the, the captain of the game. He managed to get on the score sheet. Uh, it's one of them that you'll never forget for the rest of your moments and such a proud moment. You know, I love playing for my country. Um, and I like you said there, I've done it at every level. So um, to finally you know, play for the Socceroos was something that you dreamed of from such a young age. You know, I remember going to, you know, the World Youth Under-20s tournament, you know, in, uh, in Australia. Uh, I think it was like in 89 or uh, 90. Um, the likes of Zelic and Bonita Carboni and watching these guys play and you're thinking, wow, how good is this? To, you want to play for Australia. So for me to actually then play for Australia um, was amazing. Um, I guess... Like I've said before, though, the, the biggest disappointment and the thing that hurts me the most is obviously not not going to a World Cup, which, you know, again, wasn't my decision and something that, um, you know, is very disappointing for me that I never got the opportunity to do that because I certainly feel that I thoroughly deserve to, to go to, especially the one in 2010. With Scotland ever, like, genuinely interested in giving you a cap? Did you ever talk to people from over there? Yeah, I did. Yeah, um, it was Bertie Votes was in charge of the, the the Scottish national team at the time, and then Walter Smith actually took over thereafter. And there was a lot of discussions and chats at the time, um, but it was one that I never um, considered too seriously because Australia gave me everything. They gave me the opportunity to start my career. I came through state teams, institutes of sports, uh, joeys, under twenties. Um, for me, they were they gave me everything, and it was only fair that I gave them that back. You know, I was loyal as they were as to me. So, and I was always proud to play for my country. So, um, if you're looking at it from a tactical perspective, or what would have probably been better for my career, probably playing for Scotland would have been. But it was never in my mindset to to actually go and set out to do that. So you did mention missing out on the 2010 World Cup. How hard was that for you? Like, what was the experience when you found out? And afterwards, did you watch the World Cup with a sense of, I should have been there? Uh, it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. I, I felt I felt embarrassed. I felt like someone had just kicked me six foot under when I got told on the day. And um, it, it was more disbelief than anything else. And, yeah, Watching or trying to watch that World Cup was the most difficult World Cup I've ever, ever had to watch, regardless if it was watching Australia or anyone else. I was just like, what is going on? Why am I sitting in my 
mother-in-law's front lounge watching Australia play Germany right now in in UK when I should be in South Africa. That was my mindset, you know. So that was, um, yeah, it, it was a bit surreal. Probably the hardest um, period for me in my career because I couldn't do anything about it. There wasn't anything I could do. Um, it was one person's perception. And I think a lot of the, the media at the time were asking the question as well, why? Um, just like I was. But it was one of them I'll, I'll never know. So, um, unfortunately, that's just football, though. You, you've got to roll with the punches, unfortunately. And that was uh, a pretty low moment. And after that, for me, playing for my country was never the same. It, it never had the same feel for me. It was it was kind of like the, my my love had been ripped out of me um, after that playing for, for the green and gold. I just, it was sort of something that you just did now because it was, it was decent to do on your CV, but really didn't want to go to be perfectly honest. Have you spoken to any of the people involved in you not getting selected or the people that got in over you since then? Um, no, not really because it's, it's one of them where it's by the by, you know, you, you progress, you move on, you get on with your own career, you, you just do what you have to do. And from that day forth, my only mindset was my career in playing for my club football was the most important thing for me. Um, and uh, I never looked back really on that or never looked to, to get in contact with people. If they wanted me, they knew where I was. That's the way I looked at it. Um, and and that's, that's the way I took it. And I think one of your final games for the green and gold was in Scotland against Scotland. How weird was that <laughs> being in that environment? Again, that was out of the blue getting selected for that game. Um, and I guess it's uncanny that that actually probably that was my last game <laughs> playing against Scotland, um, country where you spent most of your time and possibly could have played for and could have been in the other, <laughs> in the other dugout possibly. But um yeah, it was it was a bit of a weird one at that time, and um, I guess after that, I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to play for Australia again. And happened to be that I didn't. Uh, it was a it was a time where I think um, Ange hadn't quite got the job for Australia at that period. It was a transitional moment uh, for the national team, and um, once Ange got the job, I was never contacted ever. But uh, I don't think I was the only one. I think that was just the way that Ange, Ange did things. So I never took that too uh, personally. It was just one of those things. But disappointed at the same time, I never got the opportunity to um, to actually get out there and, and have the opportunity to, to play with under Ange, you know, with the national team. Maybe that would have changed my fortunes. Who knows? But as we all know and has been documented, it, it, it wasn't, uh, exactly a honeymoon period for me actually ever playing for, for my country uh, in terms of stats, which was always reminded, but it's it doesn't really bother me to this day now. it's I've still had the honour of actually having the experiences of, of playing for my country and uh, something that you'll never get taken away from you and uh, opportunity that a lot of people don't get. Before the massive disappointment of the World Cup omission uh, and you had that never got that elusive goal. Were you confident that you were going to score a goal in the near future for the Socceroos? Um, I suppose the more it built up, um, the harder it became. And in terms of you would come into camp and the first question anyone would ever ask you, or they would say, it's going to happen this time. 
So if you, <laughs> and it was so it was just a constant, always there type of moment, um, which I don't think pretty much helped me. And I, I just didn't, I just didn't settle into um, the whole situation after a few games of playing and then not playing, sitting on a bench and then coming back into the team. I was the type of player that needed to have a good run of games to feel part of actually or be important within the team itself. I've always been that type of player where if you give me the the importance and I, I feel important to the team, I'll always perform a lot better. And certainly I think I feel that was probably the case for the national team that um, we had so many good players at that point uh, at that moment. I actually say this a lot. I was probably one of the most fortunate to play with the players that I did in the national team, but one of the most unfortunate as well because of the, the limited opportunities that, that it gave you to play, you know, game in, game out for your country as well and who you were competing against. Um, but still, still great memories. Now, Scott, before we wrap it up, uh, with our guests, we like to do a nice little last segment. It's the segment that everyone loves, listens to the show for. It's the Where Do We Begin quiz so, Scott, you'll be going up against Jackson. I'll be asking you five, right. five questions, and you've just got buzzing with your name. And right. uh, give it a go. All right. And it's most of the questions are uh, kind of related to career. So we like to keep it on a kind of similar note to the rest of the pod. So question one. Uh, on the 21st of August 1991, which was your birthday or eight years earlier, birthday, yeah. uh, Latvia declared independence after occupation since 1945 – from which country? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Jackson. Oh, you Jackson's having a bit of a laughing fit there. <laughs> it needs to settle down. Oh, um, Jackson? Uh, um, yeah, Jackson, go for it. Uh, I'm going to say, Jackson, come on. Uh, Lithuania. Lithuania is not correct. All right. Right, Scott is going to say Russia. Yeah, well, Soviet Union, it's correct. Oh, one point yeah. for Scott, well done. Uh, so, that's, yeah, one more, Scott. Question two, closest to the pin. So you played, you played in lots of places across the world during your time. Uh, yeah. But how many kilometres uh, is it from Melbourne to Glasgow? Oh, I'm going to say... 19,550. 19,550. What are you going to go for, Jackson? Uh, 22,003. Scott gets the point again. Uh, it's 16,968. Oh. So Scott's got, <laughs> got the 2-0 advantage, but we'll move on to uh, question three. We've got a little audio grab we've got for this one. I think we all know what that song is, but can you tell me who was singing it? Scott. Scott. Oh. Scott. <laughs> Scott oh, no. Elvis. Elvis. Yeah, Elvis is correct. 
Oh, I wasn't on the ball there. I was just listening. I was just vibing along with the song. <laughs> yeah. So I was watching the video. It's from a movie, and he was singing in the back of a truck with some chickens in the truck. <laughs> apparently, he was at close to the end of his career, and um, it was pretty. He didn't really want to do the movie, so he walked out of the studio after singing that song. So pissed off. Why? Why? It's a banger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going right at the Spotify playlist. <laughs> Uh, now, Motherwell, you played for Motherwell, obviously, uh, then nicknamed The Well. And uh, Abraham's Well is an historic water well associated with the biblical narrative of Abraham. It's located in Beersheba. But what country is Beersheba in? Scott. Scott. Scott, Scott go for Israel. it. Israel. Israel's correct. 4-0. Oh. <laughs> this is a dropping, Jackson. <laughs> Embarrassing. But. <laughs> For question five, uh, I think most of our listeners will know we like to do a who am I. So I'll go down from five points all the way down to one point, giving just a series of clues. And once you've buzzed in, you can't buzz in again until uh, the other person's got it wrong. All good with that, Scott? Right. Yeah, all good. All right. So... Uh, for five points, Jackson's got to get this one right to win it. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of a long shot. All right, here we go. Let's go. <laughs> uh, so I'm a footballer who was born on the 10th of April 1992 in Africa. I won't name the country yet, but somewhere in Africa. Do you want to have a go? <laughs> no, we'll go. We'll wait till the next one. I'll, I'll, tie, oh, I'll go for the top. All right. You uh, can go for the four points and right. go for the draw. Uh, Af- 92 Africa. Um, so he's 28. 28 now. Um, <laughs> oh. And it's to do with Scott's career? Well, he's played for a club that Scott's also played for. That's the link. Um, I don't know. I don't, no, it's... <laughs> Scott, usually we, for the Who Am I, we do uh, copy your famous birthday so 21st of august for you but there were too many people born on the 21st of august famous <laughs> it was robert lewandowski and um yeah no one else really so it's not somewhat too related to your career but i'll move on to the four points uh so i'm a winger who's played at senior level for clubs in france austria and england and i'm most known for my time in england oh I can move it on. Um, I'm still trying. African winger who played in the Premier League. Okay. Oh, he's 28. Uh, Scott. 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 Oh, go for it. Sadio Mane. Oh my God, Scott's gone. Oh, no. That's correct. Ace <laughs> <laughs> nil to Scott. This is unbelievable. <laughs> Jackson, how do you feel? That's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> Okay, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, then for those playing along at home, that, that's incredible, Scott. But for three points, the question was, uh, I hold the record for the fastest Premier League hat-trick, 176 seconds in a 6-0 win against Aston Villa in 2015. I've won 69 caps for Senegal, scoring 19 goals, and I'm Liverpool's current number 10. Of course, Scott, who is it? It's Sadio Mane. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can um, have me back anytime, Jackson. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep studying. We'll go next time. That's the most shameful performance in quizzing history, I reckon. That's oh, I think this is the worst one so far. Eight nil. I don't think it can get much worse than that. But um, I think that's about all we've got time for. Uh, so we'll leave it there, Scott. Massive thank you for coming on. 
Yeah, my thank pleasure, you, guys. Anytime, anytime, Jackson. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Oh, Jackson, how good was that? That was really good. Thank you again to Scott for coming on. We say this every time, but Scott, that was absolutely brilliant. One of the best so far, I reckon, easily. And Jackson, what's our outro topic for today? So our outro topic today is football derbies. So the biggest ones, the best ones that we know, even the little ones that you wouldn't know. We'll have a chat about that. So Harper, what have you got? Yeah, so you've got the massive atmospheres, just the berserk nature of the um, old firm. Of course, uh, in the Glasgow derby, uh, Celtic Rangers. And, yeah, that's always heated. And um, I remember when Rangers were liquidated, uh, they went back to the bottom of the pyramid and they, they still occasionally play Celtic in the Cups and it was just still huge, even if they were like three divs apart or whatever. What about you? Um, one of the bigger ones that I know, because being a Barcelona fan, is the El Clasico and obviously is one of the bigger derbies in world football, just the hatred you have for that team in white. I just don't really want to say their name. Like that week is just crazy. You don't want to look at them. You don't want to see them. Um, I remember watching some of them here at a Barca fan club and the Real Madrid supporters would come across. You see Benzema score an early goal and they just go off. Oh, I just hated it. Yeah, um, as an Arsenal fan, Arsenal's got a few big rivals. Um, Tottenham, Arsenal, Tottenham, the North London derby, of course, that's always – it's. Sounds cliche, but like if you're a fan of the Premier League, you'll know the passion and the hatred that um, teams have got for each other. It's one of the best on the planet. And yeah, any any more local ones that you can think of? Well, local being um, one and MPL one, Heidelberg versus South Melbourne. One of the bigger ones, as in history as well. Both big, both big Greek clubs in Melbourne. That's a huge rivalry when when you get those sorts of supporters out there, even though. It is a smaller league, being the MPL here in Victoria. Yeah, and I reckon I had to say it as a Melbourne and big Melbourne Victory fan, but I reckon the biggest derby in the country has got to be the Sydney derby. It's because it's east versus west. You've got that geographical hatred of each other, and in Sydney you can feel like the west just hates the east, and they're the east are all up themselves, and the west a bit more hardcore. And do you think that sort of comes about more because? Western United, I mean, Western Sydney don't really have that many other rivals, whereas Sydney have Victory, whereas Victory have City, uh, Sydney, Adelaide, now Western United, sort of have a rivalry with everyone, whereas Sydney really only have Western Sydney and Victory? I reckon that's a part of it. And I reckon the thing about the Melbourne Derby that doesn't make it as big and there's not as much passion in it, as much as I had to say, it's just Melbourne City is just not close to the level of the amount of fans and the uh, the fans being like the lifeblood of the club. But Victory, in their heyday, they were getting um, oh, I can 25, remember, yeah. 30K to every game. And Melbourne City, nowadays, you'd be lucky to go and get 10. Yeah, it's 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 very different. Like this, watching the Sydney derbies on the TV at the new stadium as well at Western Sydney is just it's intense. It's it's what you want a rivalry to be in this country. Yeah, I still love the Melbourne Derby. Obviously, I've never been to a Sydney Derby living in Melbourne. And Melbourne Derby still, it's always a great atmosphere. It's it, The teams have got a hatred for each other, but it's, it feels a bit more forced, you know, just because it's like Melbourne City have just been planted in there. They Like both teams are just from Melbourne. It's not East Melbourne, West Melbourne, North Melbourne, South Melbourne, whatever. It's just... Well, they share the same ground, so yeah. it's, it's kind of hard to... I've, I think I remember one of the first set-offs when when Melbourne were the heart, back in the day, they'd make victory wear their away shirt at the derby. 
I remember being a big Victory fan at the time and just hating that. Like, oh, you're going to make us wear our away shirt at our home ground, but it is your home game, but you're making us wear our away shirt in our own city. Like yeah. that, what, that got me so riled up. And we spoke to Simon Hill um, a couple of weeks ago. It would just make it so much better if each team just had their own ground that was perfectly sized. Melbourne City maybe having a couple hundred seater stadium for all their fans and Victory having the bigger one, you know. It's Melbourne City, a bit of a small club. Yeah, put Melbourne in, at Amy Park and then build a stadium for City somewhere in, yeah. the, um, in the north. Yeah, or wherever. Just give them a geographical location. And... Um, I think South America. I've, oh I have God. to talk about River Plate versus Boca Juniors. It's oh, just the fact that they had to reschedule one oh. of the games to be in another continent. Yeah. Like, how crazy is that? Now, like, didn't they, like, were they, sh- it wasn't shooting. They were doing something to the team bus. Oh, just throwing bottles yeah, and all that stuff. bottles and then it kept getting delayed and delayed. This is the um, Copa Libertadores final. We're talking about the South American Champions League, I guess you call it, and course it got moved to madrid the second leg of that game and there's no away fans allowed at that it's just like just how crazy the fact that it had to be moved to a totally different continent yeah like that's how intense that derby is like you still had thousands and thousands of fans going over there just because they're that dedicated they just love the rivalry and the passion i use this word a lot but the passion of that big game and that massive atmosphere they just can't get enough of it one of my favorite things, I watched this YouTube series uh, called Roots of the Rivalry on a Rabona TV, if anyone wants to check it out. Um, a lot of derbies come from two, one club splitting off, as in Liverpool and Everton. And one big one I found out was Inter and AC Milan. Mm. And the reason Inter and AC Milan get their names is because um, back in the heyday of America, like when the club started, it was Inter who was there first, but they were just Milan. And then there was a point in time where the Italian league said, we're going to make one league for the only Italian players and one league for clubs who want to have international players. So the players in that club who wanted to play in the all Italian league split off and made AC Milan. And the ones who wanted to stay in that international league became Internazionale Milano. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Internazionale. Inter for short. Yeah. And um, they share a stadium, but it's, you always get that stadium full for both teams. Yeah. It's absolutely pumping. And if we had that kind of thing over here, it would be even better. But I still think separate teams for the best. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think if you've got any more that you can think of, make sure to hit us up on our socials. Uh, we're at WDWBpod on Twitter and Instagram. And our Facebook is at Where Do We Begin? Or chuck us an email, Where Do We Begin Pod at gmail.com. And of course, our Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash WDWB pod. We'd massively appreciate it if you could help us out, um, support the pod a little, and you get a bit of bonus content. So, uh, yeah, if you're interested in that, head to Patreon.com slash WDWB pod. We'd massively appreciate it. Let us know your thoughts on the show. Give us a five star review. See you, Is that mate. all we've got? Yeah, I think that's all we got. See you, mate. See you, guys.